We are going to turn our attention one more time this morning to the book of Philemon. So I encourage you to turn there with me. We will read all 25 verses. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved brother and fellow worker, and to Aphia, our sister, and to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And I pray that the fellowship of your faith may become effective through the knowledge of every good thing which is in you for Christ's sake. For I have come to have much joy and comfort in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Therefore, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you, since I am such a person as Paul the aged, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment, who formerly was useless to you, but now is useful both to you and to me. I have sent him back to you in person, that is, sending my very heart, whom I wish to keep with me, so that on your behalf he might minister to me in my imprisonment for the gospel. But without your consent, I did not want to do anything, so that your goodness would not be in effect by compulsion, but of your own free will. For perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you regard me a partner, accept him as you would me. But if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it, not to mention to you that you owe to me even your own self as well. Yes, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, since I know that you will do even more than what I say. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that on every page of your word we are pointed to your son. God, we pray as we look at the story of these three men that their story And Paul's words would point us again to your son and that we would leave encouraged to trust him with all of our hearts. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my more humbling experiences from my seminary days came from preaching class. Uh, We would have uh, a couple of terms worth of talking about preaching and reading about preaching. And then in the third term, we finally actually got down to doing some preaching. And so every day in class, a different student was assigned to prepare a sermon and preach that sermon to the class. And then after you preached your sermon, 
Uh, That was immediately followed by a period of the student alternately smiling and cringing as the professor and fellow classmates offered both their encouragements about your sermon and their critiques of it. And I think I will remember as long as I live the day when I had preached my sermon to the class from the book of Revelation and the professor, when I got done, immediately the first thing he said was, well, you know, what you said was actually quite good, but I kept waiting for you to growl at us. And apparently, numerous times through the sermon, when making an important point, I raised both of my hands to the side of my head like this in a claw-like position so that the professor said, you sort of reminded me of a bear. And one of the students followed up by saying, yeah, it was kind of distracting. And I sat down uh, after that, and at the time I thought they were nitpicking. Why couldn't he have just stopped with what you said was actually quite good? Why did he have to point out the one relatively small area where I needed improvement if the content of the sermon was good? Well, the reason for that, it later occurred to me, is because that professor and those students didn't want me standing before some congregation like this one week by week and having you miss key points in the sermon because you were snickering at me as I looked like a bear. And so just in a small way, in a, in a, in a sort of insignificant way, God gave me another reminder that I needed to learn how to receive constructive criticism, that I needed to be willing to accept negative feedback along with positive It seems to me, as I think about it, that's one of the most important parts of our Christian growth. We need to be able to receive both commendation and critique and to be able to grow from both. We need to remember that Jesus, for instance, to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2 said, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. But that Jesus also said to them, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And if you read Revelation chapters 2 and 3, you'll see that he does this several times. He does it with the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira as well. I know where you dwell, he says to the Pergamites, where Satan's throne is, and that you hold fast my name, but I have a few things against you. I know your deeds, he says to the church at Thyatira, and your love and faith and service and perseverance, but I have this against you. It seems to me if we're going to grow in the Christian life, we must be willing to learn from both compliments and critiques. We must be willing to listen to the words that come both before and after that word, but. And as... He broke the seal on his newly arrived letter from the Apostle Paul. Philemon was learning that very lesson. For as we read the letter, we saw that in some areas that are far more important than giving a good sermon to a seminary class, Philemon received from Paul high, high praise. He was a man, verse 5, of love and faith. He had been, verse 7, a tremendous help and refreshment to his local church. And so Paul commends him. And yet Philemon is also offered in this letter some critique that must have been far more stinging than my professor telling me I looked like a bear. Paul is insinuating in this letter that he is not sure of Philemon's willingness to forgive a brother who has sinned against him. And that's quite a serious charge, especially when we remember that Jesus said in Matthew 6:15, if you do not forgive others... 
then your father will not forgive your transgressions. So Paul is offering a serious critique. He is laying a serious charge at Philemon's feet here. It's a critique that's given in love, no doubt, but it's a critique nonetheless. And therefore, it must have been difficult for Philemon to swallow this letter. Paul, as we read the letter, is saying, in effect, I know your deeds, Philemon. I know that you love your church. I know that you trust the Lord. I know that you've opened your home. I know that you've refreshed the saints, but I have this against you. I'm not sure that you're ready to forgive Onesimus, your new brother in Christ Jesus. I'm not sure that you're willing to let bygones be bygones, to forgive whatever it is that he did to you that resulted in his forced labor on your behalf. I'm not sure that you're willing yet to welcome him, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. It surely wasn't the easiest letter that Philemon had ever received, but it came from someone who loved him, and it carried with it great potential. Not only the potential for Onesimus to be set free from his guilt and his indentured service, but for Philemon to be set free from the bondage of unforgiveness and revenge. And so we want to look at Paul's letter with its compliments and with its critiques one more time this morning, because God might be speaking through Paul to some of us as well. There were, as we said already, some areas in which Philemon was doing quite well, some areas in which he deserved commendation, some areas, if you will, where he would have received an A plus on his spiritual report card. And I want to point out three of them to you before we get to the critiques. You may have noticed, first of all, as we read through the book the third time this morning, that Philemon had a penchant for hospitality. Hospitality. His home was apparently open, first of all to the Lord and therefore to the Lord's people. Didn't we learn in verse 2 that the church in Colossae met in Philemon's house? Now, because it met in Philemon's house, we can well guess that it wasn't a megachurch. But at the same time, it may not have been a church of just six or eight people either. We don't know for sure. We just know that it met in Philemon's house. But let's just imagine for a moment that the church in Colossae was about the size of our church. Small, but not just a handful of people either. And now you envision all of us crammed into your living room and dining room with me using your dining room table as a makeshift pulpit this morning. And then imagine doing that every Sunday morning and every Wednesday night. And you can see that the compliment that Paul is paying to Philemon in verse 2 is a significant one. In ways that are not common to every Christian, Philemon's home was open to the Lord. And that's even more apparent when we discover in verse 22 that Paul looked forward to lodging in Philemon's home himself. He says, I hope that by your prayers I'll be delivered to you soon. And since you're praying for me and since I'm hoping that I will be out of prison soon, why don't you go ahead and prepare a room for me? Why don't you go ahead and prepare a place for me to stay when I come through Colossae? So it wasn't just that Philemon perhaps had a large living room and was willing to jam a lot of people into it once or twice every week. Apparently, Philemon and his family were also willing to go to the trouble of having an extended house guest of cooking for him, of washing his clothes, of entertaining him, and so on. And who knows how long Paul would stay. When you read the book of Acts and you kind of piece things together, you realize that Paul never actually went to Colossae. 
So the church at Colossae was started by some associates of Paul. Paul had never actually been there himself. He knew Philemon, but he'd never been to the church. And so who knows when he comes whether or not he might want to stay for weeks or months to get himself acquainted with the church and to minister to them. And when he made his plans to go to Colossae, it was Philemon whose hospitality Paul knew he could count on. He was a man of hospitality. Second, we should notice that Philemon had a knack for encouragement. For encouragement. In verse 5, Paul speaks of Philemon's love for the saints. And then in verse 7, he expands on that, becomes a little bit more specific about that when he says to Philemon, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. I was studying this week and it occurred to me, I love the word refreshed. It's an amazing word. Isn't it wonderful to be refreshed? Whatever that means to you, whether it's physical or spiritual or emotional, just to, to feel washed clean and refreshed. And in Colossae, Philemon, what a compliment was known as Mr. Refreshment. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. What does Paul mean by that? How did Philemon go about showing love and refreshing the people of God in Colossae? Well, it's possible that this is another reference to Philemon's hospitality. Maybe Paul is commending Philemon here again for providing the kind of inviting atmosphere for worshipers and overnight guests that made them feel relaxed and welcomed and encouraged when they came to his home. Maybe he had a fresh batch of sweet tea always ready for them. But it's also possible that Paul is referring to something else, some other kind of refreshment. Maybe Philemon had a teaching role in this church that met in his home. So maybe it was Philemon's sermons or his lessons that were refreshing and helpful to the congregation. Or maybe it was just that he had a knack of encouraging other people through little notes or through sitting down and praying with them or through giving wise counsel or maybe just having always a kind and uplifting word to say and a smile to match. We don't know exactly how he did it, but we know from this letter that Philemon was known as a refresher of God's people. You know anyone like that? Someone who just being around them is like a cold glass of water when your soul is weary. That was Philemon. He was like Barnabas in the previous generation of the early church. He was a son of encouragement. He made the people leave church on Sunday refreshed and so glad that they had come. Thirdly, notice that Philemon was a man of prayer. A man of prayer. In verse 22, we discover that Paul was confident that even though in prison he was out of Philemon's sight, he certainly was not out of Philemon's mind. Paul knew that Philemon was praying for him. And just as in verse 4, Paul's eyes were not fixed on the walls of his prison, but were looking outward as he prayed for the churches all over the Roman Empire, so we find now in verse 22 that Philemon's eyes weren't trained simply on the needs and problems of his family and his local church. He was not a provincial Christian. He didn't just pray for himself and for the things he could see, but he prayed also for the missionaries. He prayed for Paul, one of the suffering saints. He prayed for the outside world. He was a man of prayer, and Paul commends him for it. And before we leave these commendations, I think we would do well to take a few pages out of Philemon's book. I wonder, is your home open to the Lord and to his people? Is there someone that you need to invite for Sunday lunch or Friday dinner? 
Is there a Bible study or a ladies' fellowship or a prayer time that you need to host? Is your home open to the Lord and to his people? And is your heart open to the Lord's people? Are you an encourager? Are you refreshing to be around? Do you notice when people need a smile or a word of encouragement? And do you not only notice it, but do you make sure that you go out of your way to give it? Is there someone who needs help around the house that you could be a refreshment to? Someone who needs a note of exhortation or encouragement that you could be a refreshment to? And do you pray like Philemon? Brian's been in Kenya for two weeks. Have you prayed for him? What about our long-term missionaries? Those people whose faces we see each week in the prayer meeting. Do you pray for them? Do you pray for the persecuted church in China or Iran or elsewhere? Can these people say to you, as Paul does to Philemon, in essence, I know you're praying for me. I know that you are praying for me. I have to confess that in all these ways, Philemon has much to teach me. And no doubt many of you would say the same. So think about it. Hospitality, encouragement, prayer. How does your report card read in those categories? Now, as commendable as Philemon's example is, we must also point out, because Paul does, that his spiritual report card also read a lot like many of our academic report cards used to read. That is, as you go down through this letter, there are a handful of impressive grades. There are some A pluses, in fact. But as we take a closer look, there is also at least one category under which Paul may have written those two letters that are familiar to children everywhere, N.I., needs improvement. There was an area in Philemon's life where Paul saw a need, perhaps, for improvement. And before I point it out to you, Let me remind you of the circumstances that occasioned this letter. Either because of some large outstanding debt that Philemon owed, or that Onesimus owed, or as a means of making restitution for some harm that Onesimus caused, Onesimus has been sentenced to a form of ancient slavery that we would more commonly call indentured service. Onesimus has been placed into Philemon's custody until such time as he could, by manual labor of some sort, pay off his debt to Philemon. But in the middle of his sentence, Onesimus decides he's going to run away, and so he runs off to hide in Rome. But in God's providence, in Rome, he comes across the Apostle Paul, who's in prison there. And he goes probably with the Christians there in Rome to hear Paul preach, maybe to Talk to him one-on-one, and through Paul's witness, verse 10, Onesimus becomes a believer in Jesus. Onesimus is born again by God's grace. And having been born again, having come to Christ, Onesimus now realizes, I've got to go back to Philemon. I've got to finish my sentence. I've got to make things right. And as he goes back, Paul sends with him a letter of commendation that we have in our hands this morning. And as the letter informs us, Paul wants Philemon to receive Onesimus, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Paul wants Philemon to release Onesimus, verses 18 and 19, from whatever debt had landed him in Philemon's custody in the first place. 
Paul wants, of course, also for Philemon to emotionally forgive Onesimus so that he can receive him as a brother. Whatever scars Philemon had because of Onesimus, Paul wants forgiven. And although Paul expressed confidence in verse 21 that Philemon would eventually do the right thing, the rest of the letter seems to indicate that Paul's confidence was tempered with genuine concern. Paul was concerned that though Philemon would eventually do the right thing, he was going to have a really hard time doing it. Notice the strong language that Paul feels the need to use in addressing his friend Philemon. He says in verse 8, I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what is proper. Now he goes on and says, I'm not going to order you, I'm going to appeal to you. But the very fact that he says, I could order you to do this is strong language, isn't it? And then he uses this word appeal twice in verses 9 and 10. I appeal to you. In other words, please, please do the right thing. And then in verse 19, he says, don't forget, Philemon, that you owe to me even your very self. You hear what Paul is saying? He is having to urge this man because he's worried, he's concerned that Philemon is not going immediately to respond with forgiveness, with kindness, with welcome. He's saying something like this. On the one hand, Philemon, I'm confident that you'll eventually do what's right. But I think you're going to need a little bit of coaxing. I'm concerned about you, that you're going to have difficulty forgiving Onesimus' debt and treating him with the same kindness that you're generally known for. And if you and I think about it for a moment, we can understand why Philemon might have had trouble. We don't know exactly what Onesimus did to Philemon or to his family, but we know that he had incurred enough debt to them to get himself taken into custody as an indentured servant, manual labor to pay back his crime. So whatever it was, his crime was significant. And we can put ourselves in modern day shoes of Philemon, can't we? Imagine for a moment that some young man, whether in marriage or out of marriage, had a child with your daughter and then walked out on her and her child and then refused to pay his child support for 18 years and built up a multi-thousand dollar debt to your family. Or imagine that a reckless and uninsured teenage driver plows through the rear end of your car and because she's uninsured, she leaves you holding the bag for $10,000 worth of repairs. How would you feel if that person showed up at church next Sunday and said, I've become a Christian. Welcome me. Here I am. And how would you feel if I sent you a letter urging you to drop the lawsuit against them? And how would you feel if I said to you, you know, This fella is so excited about the Lord, I think I'm going to bring him on as my apprentice. That's what's happening in this story. Philemon is owed a great debt, perhaps not only a monetary one, but an emotional one as well, because of something Onesimus has done. And Onesimus walks back into Colossae and says, I'm a Christian now. And he's got a letter from Paul, Philemon's friend, the apostle, saying, I want you to forgive the debt. I want you to drop the suit. And not only that, it would be great if you could send him back to work with me because he's going to be a partner in the ministry now. 
theoretically, if something like that happened to us, we would all want to forgive and welcome the person into the church family. But if we actually put ourselves in his shoes, we can see why Philemon might have had a hard time. And yet, with all the emotions that Philemon must have been feeling, with all the scars that he had from Onesimus' crimes, with all the outs and excuses that the secular world would have given him in this situation, Paul is willing to write needs improvement on Philemon's report card. Paul is willing to plead with Philemon not to do what is normal, not to do what would be expected, not to do what would be, quote, understandable given the circumstances. Paul pleads with Philemon to do, verse 8, what is proper, to receive this man as a brother and to forgive him of his crimes. So the category under which Philemon needed improvement Forgiveness. Forgiveness. If the debt incurred by Onesimus had been not only financial but emotional, we can all imagine that even the strongest and kindest of believers would have difficulty with Paul's request of complete forgiveness. And perhaps someone in this room is struggling this morning with exactly that. Many of you have been scarred deeply by people within and without your family, And you say that all is forgiven and in your heart you would like it to be true, but you also know that if that person showed up at your door this afternoon, it would be very difficult for you to welcome them in or to hug her neck or to shake his hand. And if they were sitting in the service this morning, well then it would be even more difficult, wouldn't it? You'd have a hard time hearing anything I saying because your heart would be so agitated by all the memories of what he did or what she said or the debt that he owed. Is there anyone like that in your life? Someone that you just haven't forgiven? If so, though I have enough confidence in Christ to order you to do what's right, rather, for love's sake, I appeal to you on his or her behalf. Reach out to him. Pray for her. Love him. Welcome her. Forgive before it is too late. Perhaps plain and simple unforgiveness was the top and bottom of Philemon's problem. Perhaps he had allowed a scar to become a grudge. But let me suggest another possibility that may have been working alongside the grudge factor. Remember that Philemon was not normally an angry or unforgiving person, was he? Far from it. We read that he was a lover and a refresher of the saints in verses 4 through 7. He weakly laid out the welcome mat for the entire church in his home. And when he laid out the welcome mat for the entire church, he also laid it out for any struggling, straggling unbeliever who may wander into the Sunday service as well. So this was not a man who was generally enslaved to a bitter and unforgiving spirit, it wouldn't seem. He knew what it was to love, and he probably knew what it was to forgive. And that makes me wonder if perhaps there may have been something else at work here. Some other kind of bondage working alongside the grudge factor and making it hard for Philemon to receive Onesimus as a brother. So to what else might Philemon have been enslaved? As you read in between the lines here and think about the culture in which he lived, I would suggest to you that perhaps Philemon was also struggling with bondage to social custom. Social custom. 
We all understand what that is, I think. Social custom is the part of us that says this is just the way we do things in America or in Cincinnati or in my family or whatever it is. Social custom. This is just the way we do things. And what does social custom say to someone like Philemon? What would it say to us? We don't just drop lawsuits when someone owes us $10,000. We don't just forget about that. And we don't run over in the courtroom and shake hands and exchange greetings with the defendant before the trial. And social custom says we would all feel very uncomfortable and awkward if someone like that ran into us in public, and even more so if they were sitting in the church service with us this morning. I say it wasn't likely simply a cantankerous and unforgiving spirit that made it difficult for Philemon to forgive. And it probably wasn't simply about the money either because Paul tells us in verse 18 that he's going to take care of that part anyway. So if Philemon was generally a friendly guy, if he loved the Lord, if he wasn't in the end going to be out the cash, why is Paul so concerned that he may be slow to forgive? I surmise that it may have been because forgiving a slave just wasn't done in ancient culture. And calling him brother certainly wasn't done. So Philemon was quite possibly enslaved to his culture. What would his neighbors think about a man who welcomed a criminal like Onesimus into his home? What would his wife think? Did it ever occur to you that perhaps the crime committed was not directly against Philemon, but maybe against his wife? Perhaps that's why, though, the decision on Onesimus' freedom seems to have rested ultimately with Philemon. Paul addresses the letter not only to Philemon in verse 1, but to Aphia, who is probably his wife. Paul wanted Philemon's wife to hear this letter as well. Why? Because, maybe because, if harm had been done by Onesimus to Aphia, that would make it much more difficult for Philemon to welcome Onesimus. What will Aphia think? If I forgive the debt and begin worshiping side by side with this known criminal who's hurt my family, will I be seen as an unloving husband? Will I be seen as a traitor? Will I be seen as a pushover? Will I be seen as a weak link in ordered Roman society? What will people think? Paul must have had an inkling that these kinds of questions were running through Philemon's mind and they would run through ours. Perhaps Philemon was, at least in one area, enslaved to his culture. And if a wonderful, godly man like Philemon, who received so many condemnation, commendations excuse me, from Paul, can be perhaps enslaved to the culture in an area of his life, then it's certainly possible that some of us could be as well. Do you make decisions sometimes just based on what the people around you think is the right thing to do or just on what the people around you generally do? It's easy to do it in parenting. You ever make parenting decisions not based on any well-thought-out biblical principles but simply based on what's normal in American culture? Have certain attitudes maybe toward your boss because that's the way employees always think about their boss. I wonder if any of you think about the speed limit or the copyright laws in terms of custom rather than in terms of Romans 13.1. I wonder how many of us make entertainment choices, not based on any standard of objective holiness, but because, well, everybody watches that show. It's a great show. You know what it is? All of that? 
slavery to our culture. I do things because everyone else does things. And I'm enslaved to my culture in certain ways, and so are you. And instead of denying it, or instead of convincing ourselves that there really is, quote, some redeeming value in that sex-charged TV show, or that unhelpful conversation that we're having at work, we need, rather, to repent. We need, verse 8, to do what is proper. We need to be set free. Now, I know it doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like fudging the copyright laws or watching the crass nonsense that's on American Idol is as big a deal as not forgiving someone and holding a grudge. It doesn't seem like the two equate. It doesn't seem like a little venting about our co-worker's bad habits is as bad as holding a grudge against him or being unwilling to welcome him if he should visit our church. But we need to remember what Jesus taught. Jesus taught us in Luke 16.10 that he who is in right, unrighteous in a very little thing is also unrighteous in much. Or to put it in the context of Philemon, he who is enslaved to his culture in little things will also be enslaved to his culture in big things. He who looks like his culture in regard to entertainment or traffic laws will eventually begin to look like his culture in regard to sex or in regard to tax laws or in regard to forgiveness or in regard to the historicity of the Bible. I was reading a book about Charles Spurgeon, the great English pastor and preacher, and he was involved in a controversy where a large segment of his denomination was giving up on the Bible and saying, well, it doesn't really matter if the Bible's really all true or not. And he said, take a man like that, and if you want to find out why he is giving up on the uh, truthfulness of the Bible, just follow him home. And when you follow him home, you'll eventually see some sin that he's trying to make friends with some sin that he's trying to justify. In other words, there's some small thing in his life that he eventually tried to justify, some small thing in which he tried uh, to be like the culture. And he had to start to justify it in more and more ways, and he had to make the Bible fit what he was doing. And eventually, as he made the Bible fit what he was doing in that area, he made it fit what he was doing in another area, and in another area, and in another area. And eventually he had to just say, well, we can't really be sure if the Bible is true. He was faithful in a little thing, unfaithful in a little thing, and eventually he became unfaithful in a very big thing. And the same is true for us. So I appeal to you this morning to learn the lesson of Philemon, to be set free from social custom, to be set free from blindly following American culture, and to give yourself to Jesus the Liberator. And not only do I urge you to be set free, but now let me show you from the example of Philemon just how you may be set free, just how this freedom comes to pass. What was Paul's strategy for wrestling Philemon free from bitterness and from social custom? Listen, as Paul gives Philemon four things to consider, four pieces of logic, really. Three in the form of statements of fact, and then the fourth by his example. Four pieces of logic that Paul gives to Philemon. Four arguments he makes. First, Paul says to Philemon, you accepted me. You accepted me. Verse 17, if then you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. Now that's a rhetorical statement. Because of course Philemon had accepted Paul as a partner in the gospel work. So Paul's argument really is, Philemon, you accepted me as your partner. Accept Philemon, accept Onesimus too. 
Now, someone will say, Paul, Paul, those are two different things. I mean, you, Paul, are an apostle. And Onesimus is, well, a deadbeat. Onesimus is a criminal. So it's not quite the same thing to accept you and then to turn around and accept Onesimus, is it, Paul? But the person who argues that forgets who Paul once was. Paul, at one time, was not all that different from Onesimus, was he? Paul, at one time, was a criminal and a deadbeat. You may remember that Paul had quite a sordid and violent history before he came to Christ as a younger man. So sordid and so violent, in fact, that the very first church Paul tried to join in Acts 9 in Jerusalem slammed the door in his face. That's Paul. We can't let him in here. And were it not for the encourager, Barnabas, Paul might have remained on the outside looking in, just like Onesimus. You see what Paul is saying? Someone received Paul way back when he was still a nobody and had recently been a deadbeat. And the result was that Paul became a leader, the likes of which the church had never seen and has not seen since. That's what made it so easy for Philemon to accept Paul in verse 17. And what Paul is saying is, Philemon, if you can accept me so easily, if you can see so clearly the work of Jesus in me, then accept Onesimus too. The same Jesus who knocked me off of my horse and changed my heart has come to live in Onesimus too. So if you accepted me, the one-time deadbeat and criminal, accept him too. Isn't that helpful? Doesn't the radical change that Jesus worked in Paul's life give us constant encouragement to forgive and to accept and to have hope for people who seem unforgivable and unacceptable and hopeless? How can we claim to accept the Apostle Paul? How can we read his writings and say we believe that they're God's word if we're unwilling to welcome people who come from the same sordid background that he came from? It makes no sense. So if you can trust Paul, and I hope you can this morning, we're reading the book that he wrote. If you can trust Paul into your life, if you can welcome Paul, if you can accept Paul, then whoever your personal Onesimus is can be accepted as well. Now, Paul's second piece of logic goes something like this. Not only did you accept me, Philemon, but I accepted you. I accepted you. I think that's what he's saying in verse 19 when he reminds Philemon, you owe to me even your own self. What does Paul mean? You owe to me even your own self. Was Philemon indebted to Paul the same way Onesimus was to Philemon? Namely, physically, financially? Probably not. Rather, what Paul probably means is something like this. Don't you remember that I was the one who led you to Jesus? Don't you remember that you were once just as lost as Onesimus has been? And I didn't slam the door on you. No, I welcomed you. I introduced you to Christ. Remember that. And do the same thing for Onesimus. And again, I find great help here. Can you remember what you were like before you became a Christian, before Jesus came into your life and changed it? I hope you can. It's not a pretty picture for us, is it? And yet someone accepted you and someone accepted me. So who are we to turn Onesimus away if Jesus has saved him? Who are we to stop praying for that person? Who are we to avoid them at the grocery store? 
I accepted you, says Paul. You accept Onesimus. Thirdly, Paul says to Philemon, you accepted others. You accepted others. Now, this is a little harder to see, but I want you to notice that as part of his appeal to Philemon, Paul says in verse 20, brother, let me benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Brother, refresh my heart. Sound familiar? It's the very thing for which Paul commended Philemon in the first half of the letter, isn't it? When he said in verse 7, the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Refresh my heart, brother. The hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, brother. Do you see what Paul is doing? He's saying, Philemon, you've always refreshed other people. Verse 7, that's your thing. Refreshment. So verse 20, do it again. Refresh me now by forgiving Onesimus. Paul is saying, what a joy, what water it would be to my soul, Philemon, if from a distant land while I'm in prison, I got news that you had forgiven Brother Onesimus and welcomed him into the family of God. You've accepted and refreshed others, Philemon. Now accept Onesimus and refresh me. I think this piece of logic helps us across the board. Whether our enslavement is specifically to unforgiveness this morning or whether it's to some form of social custom, Paul's words help us. Because what Paul is doing is asking Philemon to remember how he has refreshed others, how he has done the right thing in the past. And I think he wants Philemon to to think like this in his own mind. I think he wants Philemon to say to himself, yeah, it sure does feel good to refresh people. It sure does feel good to do the right thing. And Paul is right. It would really be wonderful if I did the right thing with Onesimus. And if that's what Philemon said to himself, he got it exactly right. Doesn't it feel good when God gives you the strength to do the right thing? Doesn't it feel good when you finally forgive? When you finally turn off the junk on television? Or when you finally become generous with your money? Doesn't it feel good when you finally are enabled by God's grace to do the right thing? Of course it does. And if it does, then in whatever area of enslavement God may have uncovered in your life this morning, do the right thing again. Do the right thing again. Finally, by his example, not just his words, but now by his example, Paul reminds Philemon God accepted you, Philemon. God accepted you. How does he remind him of that? Well, remember the significance of verse 18. Paul offered to pay back to Philemon the full amount of the debt that Onesimus had incurred. And as we said last Sunday, not only was Paul's generosity a practical way to make reconciliation between these two men easier, but Paul's generosity also provided Onesimus and Philemon with a wonderful, beautiful picture of Jesus. For didn't Jesus at the cross speak as Paul speaks in verse 18 on our behalf? Didn't Jesus by his death say in effect to the Heavenly Father, if he has wronged you in any way, and we have, and if he owes you anything, and we do, Father, charge that to my account. And God graciously did. 
Paul is playing Jesus here. He is demonstrating Jesus to Philemon here. Jesus says to the Father, if they owe you anything, if they've harmed you in any way, charge it to my account. So when Paul offers to pay Onesimus' debt in full, to pay Philemon back in full, he is reminding Philemon of how Jesus paid Philemon's debt in full and of how Jesus allowed Philemon's sins to be charged to his account when he died for them. And in reminding Philemon of these things, Paul is giving him another reason to forgive. Paul is saying to Philemon through his example, Philemon, God accepted you. At the cost of his son's own blood, God accepted you. Therefore, you who have been forgiven so much have every reason to accept Onesimus too. And if God has at the cost of his son's own blood, accepted us, then we have every reason to lay down our chains of enslavement as well. Whether you're bound this morning perhaps by unforgiveness in specific or by some other social custom, some cultural thing that keeps you down and keeps you from being what God wants you to be, whatever you're bound by, whether it's sexual sin or anger or gossip or overeating, or laziness, or whatever it is. If God's own Son died for us, then we have every motivation to break free from the sins that so easily entangle us and to serve Him with all our heart. He died for us. And if Jesus not only died for us, but has come to live inside of us, then we also have every resource and capability to break free from the sins that so easily entangle us. May it be so in you. As Paul says to Philemon, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit.